We are keeping democracy alive. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. So yes, there's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy. That people don't feel that they can do very much. You know what this is? This is a very Hamiltonian system. Alexander Hamilton being the guy here in a very un-Jeffersonian. In the case of the Republicans, it's dramatically the opposite. Uh, But even in the case of the Democrats. An absolute typhoon of terror against African Americans themselves. America's fascists are those people who think that Wall Street comes first and the American people come second. We're only seen as a financial sector that's uh, gotten out of hand. The shooting, the violence, that is not the drug problem. That is, in fact, the drug policy problem. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. The shooting, the violence. In 1651, Thomas Hobbes wrote in Leviathan that the life of man is solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short. The incoming Trump administration would have us believe that simply is reality and we must just get over any unrealistic hopes for anything better than that. This political side would argue that any and all attempts to actually get the society we want are just fantasies. That ideas such as democratic socialism destroy economic incentives and threaten the American sense of liberty we so cherish. Well, if that is the case, one has to wonder how oppressive life must be in the Scandinavian countries like Norway, Denmark, Iceland, and Sweden. Sure, there's top-tier education, plenty of jobs, and health care for all, but surely freedom-loving Americans would hate it in Norway. As our guest today, I suspect, would argue it is a very good life in Scandinavia and that a decent standard of living for all actually is replicable even here in our currently United States. Our guest today is George Lakey, whose new book is called Viking Economics, how the Scandinavians got it right and how we can too. Thank you for being with us, Professor Lakey. Delighted to be here. Professor Lakey is recently retired from Swarthmore College, where he was Eugene M. Lang, visiting professor for issues in social change. Lakey also held teaching posts at Haverford College and the University of Pennsylvania. He's led over 1,500 social change workshops in five continents. In 2010, he was named Peace Educator of the Year. Viking Economics is uh, George Lakey's ninth book. He's received the Martin Luther King Jr. Peace Award, the Paul Robeson Social Justice Award, and the Giraffe Award for sticking his neck out for the common good. Wow, that is quite an impressive resume, I have to say, at least for somebody like me. What was your purpose in writing this particular book, Viking Economics? And who is the, uh, the target audience for this? Thanks for the Hobbes quote. I guess part of the target audience is Hobbes. <laughs> Still did. <laughs> Who would probably freak out if he were in Scandinavia. He would be so uh, in such contradiction to his own belief about what humans could do. Uh, yeah, my purpose was actually to bring the light um, to the people's uh, often dark and discouraged views of what's possible in a society because uh, the the countries as you say have have achieved a tremendous um a tremendous amount of freedom as well as a tremendous lot of equality and shared abundance and and a lot of Americans don't get to hear about just how they did it or even that they did it and yeah. so that's why I wrote the book well, the title Viking Economics. Now, the image most of us have of Vikings is of rather brutal medieval perhaps piracy. Yet you find much to admire in the Viking culture. Tell us about that. Right. Well, uh certainly not the piracy and <laughs> certainly not the 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 pillaging and raping and all of that. Uh they the Vikings are, of course, very famous for that. The record suggests that they weren't unusual in their practices a thousand years ago. That's how people operated oh, in many places. But um, the the 
thing that has in, about them that has inspired the modern Vikings is that they were willing to go uh, on their expeditions to places where no one had gone before. Ah. So there was a sense in, among them that it was okay to head out across the sea in the, their small boats, not knowing what might be on the other side. And that's an important metaphor for us as well, I think, because we can sometimes get discouraged and think that we have to do things in the way that they've been done before. But it was extremely inspiring for the, uh, as a legacy for contemporary, uh, well, let's say a hundred years ago, uh, the Danes, Swedes, Norwegians, and Icelanders, because they, a hundred years ago or so, they were waking up to the fact that they had this tremendous legacy and asking themselves, why aren't we innovating? Why aren't we going where uh, the societies around us have failed to go? Interesting. Interesting. And and certainly uh, where we are in the currently United States is uh, not looking forward and not thinking about new ways of doing things. It's kind of... uh, hankering for an old mythic reality of uh, make America white male dominated again and just going backwards. So this is uh, (laughs) quite the opposite of that, exploring areas that haven't been explored. And they did. I mean, they have a tremendous history. I remember in elementary school uh, growing up in Massachusetts learning about the Vikings who really discovered uh, what we now call America way before uh, Christopher Columbus did and uh, before the other... uh, 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 explorers, uh, you know, slightly South uh, European uh, explorers. How did the Nordic people call upon those Viking qualities that you described in their struggles for a fair economy? They dared to imagine that humans are motivated in a different way from from uh, what most people were assuming 100 years ago and also what Hobbes was assuming. Um, they uh, a specific economist, one of the number of them who were innovative, but a guy named Gunnar Myrdal, who some people, oh, yeah. some Americans know because he wrote one of the pioneering uh, analyses of race relations in the U.S. Even though he was Swedish and an economist, he was asked to come over and do that study. Well, when he was working on his Ph.D. dissertation, what he came up with was a radically different view of what gets human beings to work. The old view of classical economists was human beings don't want to work and therefore need to be driven by fear of starvation to actually do a job. And uh, Murdoch believed quite completely the opposite, which is something actually that Freud also agreed with. That is that human beings are made up such that we get actual satisfaction out of good work to do, that we're prone to work, that even children will uh, work at tasks. They'll make up with blocks or whatever. They'll make up towers and work very hard to build their towers or whatever it is they want to do because there's something innate in us that uh, that wants to work. Um, so for Murdoch, from Murdoch's point of view, the question of, of worker productivity is related to are the design of the jobs sensible and humane and are workers fairly and justly treated as they are working rather than are they uh, being driven to work and punitively sanctioned and so on so th- that was his dissertation it actually won the nobel uh, economic prize it was highly innovative most economies even today still aren't built on the basis of it but the Nordic economic model, what economists call the Nordic economic model, was built on that assumption that people could be could, people could be enormously more productive than they often are when they're just driven by negative motivation. Um, if when they are when their own positive motivation is called forth, and that's that's one reason why worker productivity in Scandinavia is higher than it is in the U.S. Wow, that is fascinating. It's a very different model. You're right. That uh, I, I think it's kind of a accepted uh, rule here that uh, people have to be kind of forced to work, and that uh, you know life really is short, nasty, and brutish. And uh, 
you know, what what about the profit motive? I mean, conservatives would argue that, you know, the profit motive is essential for anybody to do anything. Don't democratic socialist governments crush the incentive for people to do their work well? No, they don't. <laughs> Apparently not, because the statistics are very clear. Worker productivity is higher over there than here. Now, of course, the the profit motive does exist over there. Um, but it's very interesting, some of the interviews with entrepreneurs. Uh, that's another point that I bring out in the book, that, uh, that there's a higher rate of startups in the Scandinavian countries than there is in the U.S. Really? Uh, and actually, I know, when I ran into that stat, I was really surprised because uh, there is such glorification in the U.S. We are this center of innovation and of right. startups. That is our profit, you know, profit. entrepreneurship is so worshipped here in the U.S. Well, it turns out it's better supported in Scandinavia than it is here, huh. and that's why they have a higher rate of, of entrepreneurship and of startups. Um, now, the, of course... A lot of people who start businesses do it because they can see more economic reward at, at, sure. on the horizon if they do that. But the interesting thing about the, the what shows up in the interviews is people continuing to innovate and continuing to expand their you know business uh, their businesses um, even when there's not going to be much profit gained through it. Uh, partly because of high taxes. The, the more you make over there, the higher the taxes are. Right. Um, but because there's big satisfaction, well, as for the children building a higher tower with blocks, right? There's more satisfaction in seeing your vision realized. In other words, entrepreneurship is, a, is essentially a visionary activity, just like art is, just like mm-hmm. musical composition is, mm-hmm. uh, just like... Um, a, a lot of engineering actually turns out to be. I want to put a bridge across that river, and I want it to be the most, you know, the most elegant bridge and the most um, solid bridge uh, for long time use yeah. of anybody who's built a bridge before. It's that kind of aspiration that is so strongly supported over there. And one reason why people develop the self confidence that they they think they really can do stuff like that is because uh, education is free over there, including higher education, including schools of engineering and, and business school, and and for that matter, schools of ballet and schools of theater and law school and medical school and so on. It's all free. And therefore, people with aspirations are uh, have, have no real barriers to going all the way with their aspiration and becoming that, you know, that, that surgeon who innovates new ways to handle a, a complicated surgical problem, uh, and and so uh, pat, patent uh, rates of patent uh, registration in Sweden, for example, are higher than in the United States. That would be another example of how wrong the stereotype is about the Scandinavians mm. as being some kind of nanny state where people have no incentive. They have plenty of incentive. In fact, they have more incentive than here. And I, I often wonder, you know, artists and people who create things, people who do something really good, architects, uh, musicians, whatever. I've, I've, you know, it's nice to make money from it, but clearly it's not just that. They could make money some other way. And it's not just the, the paycheck that they want. They feel good about it. You know, you think about people who've designed bridges or beautiful buildings and things like that. Yeah, they get paid and they should get paid nicely. But... It's what they're doing. You know, you think about any rock star who's making a lot of money. They're not just doing it for the money. And I think, you know, as you're talking about here, it's probably something in human nature, really. Not just, oh, we need money more, 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 more all the time. And sometimes I wonder about, you know, how healthy is it for people who have a great deal of money to just have this need, this this rather psychotic drive for more and more and more, whereas... And I don't know how much happiness that is. And I I had heard somewhere that uh, among measures of happiness that that Denmark was one of the, if not the most, 
uh, hi- happy places <laughs> where there is. That's right. That's right. Yeah, yeah. It's fun to look at the, uh, in course of writing the book, of course, I looked at all the different indices mm-hmm. that reflect economic well-being because uh, there are more and more agencies, universities, and so on that are do, uh, figuring so, out measures yeah. of national this and that and the other thing, including uh, measures for uh, health care and effectiveness of health care in various nations. Mm. There's, there, there's quite a lot of those indices now. And there is, as you say, the happiness index. And what's striking about the happiness index and all these other indices, like worker productivity and the health uh, outcomes of healthcare systems and so on, is that the Scandinavian countries play tag at the top <laughs> of hmm. those of those various indices. Oh, so yeah. you know, this year it will be Denmark, <laughs> but next year it's Iceland that's the happiest nation, and uh, you know, the year after that's Sweden, whatever. They just play tag with each other uh, in the top tier of those uh, international ratings. And then um, I, I kept looking down, you know, the list also naturally to see where my own country is because mm-hmm. I'm a very patriotic American, actually. Mm-hmm. And um, I would look, my eye would go down the list. I would find the UK, which is where my forebears come from, um, would come in around 12 or 15 on, on an average. And then the U.S. would come in around 30, 33, 34, around in there uh, for the ratings of nations. And it was really quite an eye-opener uh, for for those who believe that um, the U.S. must be the best in everything. Yeah. I don't think that any nation needs to be the best in everything. But it's, it's very, uh, it's humbling, actually, to see that ways in which we would really love to be the best. Like, wouldn't it be great to have the best health outcomes of any country? It would be tremendous, right? Or wouldn't it be best to have the longest life expectancy Mm. instead of in the U.S. right now, uh, we have a demographic of older white working-class men who are actually dying earlier than they used to to die. That is, there's a loss of life expectancy in that demographic. Mm. Um, We don't like that. We don't want that. And so it's it's really fun to see um, those indices be used as incentives for nations that are dragging so far behind like ours is to think, well, maybe we better look at our system and figure out how to improve it. So perhaps we should be a little bit like the Vikings and go out and explore and see what else is possible (laughs) in the world. If you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is uh, Keeping Democracy Alive. We're talking with George Lakey, author of the new book, Viking Economics, How the Scandinavians Got It Right and How We Can Too. Now, again, you know, people like making money. I I have to assume, uh, you know, not there's not government-enforced equality there. I mean, the, the right wing tends to paint a picture of, you know, socialism as, you know, you can't get rich. Everybody is equal. Certainly that uh, can't be the case there, And uh, which leads me to a question, a little bit of history. You know, back in the uh, 1940s, the uh, Nazis occupied, yes, we know, a great many nations. And maybe you can talk a little bit about how the Norwegians and Danes creatively resisted the Nazis and how those experiences uh, kind of foreshadowed later uh, struggles to look at poverty in those two countries. I believe that the degree of success that the Danes and Norwegians had in resisting Nazification gave them a kind of self-confidence really a, a pretty robust self-confidence that they could tackle other really uh, big challenges after yeah. after World War II. For example, uh, handling poverty. Yeah. Uh, that's something, after all, who in the world ever got rid of poverty in their society, right? It looked like uh, poverty would always be present in any economy. But the um, the Scandinavians, and uh, particularly in this case, uh, the, these uh, pre, uh, these occupied during World War II um, Scandinavians, um, got very optimistic about their can-do mm. spirit because they said, "Well, look, we prevented uh, the German Nazis from Nazifying us, right. even though that was their attempt. Uh, so we could." Do something else that's really amazing, hmm. and let's tackle 
poverty. Yeah, I mean, not everybody knows, of course, what the story of, of the occupations of Norway and Denmark. And one reason it was an interesting thing was because the Nazi ideology uh, was all about racism, right, and Aryan superiority, and so the blonde, blue-eyed people were supposed to be the best human specimens in the world. And so the Germans were expecting that when they sent the troops marching into Denmark and marching into Norway, that the people themselves would respond with great joy, because here at last was an ideology that made them the best of the world because of their racial characteristics uh-huh. or their physical characteristics, right. and uh, the, all the appeals to the old Norse gods and so on, and the Wagner being played and all yeah. of that. And and uh, instead, the Danes and Norwegians resisted the Nazification, and uh, in the schools they were very successful in resisting that and in other uh, parts of their lives. So there's nothing like adversity to uh, bring people together and get creative, as we have an opportunity for that now with uh, Trump being elected. (laughs) That's it. Could be our best organizer, I'll tell you, to to look at things. But what about the profit motive. I assume not everybody is of, of equal net worth uh, financially. How how does that no, work? No, no, how, do, how does that work there? I mean, you can still get well, rich? It, 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 it's certainly uh, true that there's a spread. There's an income spread between sure. lowest and highest. Um, they used to, 100 years ago, they had a huge disparity like we do now in the U.S., and they, but because they have a value of equality, which most Americans do also value equality, mm. um, they they uh, shifted their income spread and made it much more equal. So they're at the top. That's another index, an equality index, and they're in the top tier of the uh, nation of all the nations in the world with regard to equality. So there were a number of ways that they went about doing that. Um, one was to eliminate pretty much eliminate poverty, and of course poverty would be the lower end of the income spread, right? Mm-hmm. But And then the other thing, another important thing they did was to tax away a lot of the, um, the great wealth. Um, because over there, not only do they tax income at a very high rate for the upper echelons, but also they tax wealth, uh, typically wow, sure. a 1% wealth tax at the end of the year. So you're not, you're not only uh, paying part of your income to uh, government services, but you're also paying part of your wealth. And then another thing they do is very strong um, inheritance taxes. Wow. So b- by measures like this, they are successful in, in uh, driving their economy toward equality. Um, now, of course, one reason why that's not horribly painful, I have in my book some remarkable interviews with people who are you know, multi-millionaires and so on, even a, a, a billionaire. And um, the one reason why those folks are still in Norway is because they love living in Norway. It's got so many advantages that countries that are more unequal do not have. For example, very low crime rates. Because crime rate is connected with inequality. So uh, highly unequal societies like ours, or like theirs used to be, had high crime rates. But one way to reduce the crime rate is to increase equality, and they, they love that. They, they love the degree of security that uh, in the in the, ca- the capital city of Norway, for example, you can leave a nightclub at 4 a.m. on a Saturday night, and you can walk home, no problem. Any any part of the city is safe. So um, that 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 kind of um, free and easy atmosphere is is uh, a delight for people, no matter what their income spread is. And then there are other features like. Assured, uh, you know, free higher education if people are talented to, you know, head in the direction of law or business or mm. medicine or whatever it is. And also, uh, which means that people with higher incomes don't have to worry about, oh, well, I have enough money to put my kids in the, you know, in, in the university, but because the answer is yes, everybody has that opportunity. Mm. And, uh, so uh, and what about healthcare? Well, healthcare is a short for everyone too. If if you're if you happen to live north of the Arctic Circle, for example, in Norway or in Sweden, and you get a brain tumor that requires 
a, a very intricate kind of surgery that's only available at the other end of the country in a university hospital or something, then the health service flies you to that hospital and you get that surgery that you need. So the assumption is if people's needs are met at a very high level of quality, then one of the drivers for this, more money, more money, more money, Mm. the the sense of insecurity and, oh, what if awful things happen to my family, um, that kind of driver is diminished. Interesting, that sense of of insecurity and certainly Mm. crime. I remember many, many years ago, I was uh, working for a Democratic candidate for president, Fred Harris, who you noticed did not become president. But I remember he talked about in 1976, if you draw a high crime area, a map of high crime and high unemployment, you draw on the same map. You know, and and it's just, it's, it's really that simple. And the scarcity, my sense is, you know, Probably a lot of people think you have to have people assume that there's scarcity to make them work. But if, I mean, it sounds like here in, in Scandinavia, there's not that sense of scarcity, that there is, in fact, enough to go around. That's, that's pretty different. The contradiction, that is, to economists, because they think they, they usually think they, theirs is the study of scarcity. And you know the allocation of scarce resources, and right. it's as if the economy, the Nordic economic model, it's trying to convince people that instead we live in a world of abundance. What an amazing thing! <laughs> it's pretty, it's pretty deep philosophically to uh, try to contradict that. Now, of course, there's not endless, right. you know, endless abundance for all people to do all things. It's not like everybody's driving in a BMW over there. Uh, it's, it's just that. There is such a degree of support of people. For example, let's say uh, you have a baby. Well, then you automatically get paid uh, time off. You, it can be 10 months, uh, 12 months. It can be divided. In fact, there's pressure on the, the dads to uh, share that, uh, t- take time off, paid time off in order to take care of the baby. Yeah. The mom gets time off and so on with the, an assurance that the job that you held would be there for you when you return from taking care of the baby. That kind of support that's built in, um, of course, increases people's freedom because a lot of people would love to be freer to lavish attention on their new ones right. and their family oh, to yeah. get them that great start in the beginning. But most most Americans, for example, don't have that freedom to to take to take a year off or to take eight months off um, to take care of their little one because they are forced by yes. their circumstances to continue to work in a job. So what I found in my study was that actually Scandinavians are freer, have more individual freedom than we do in the U.S. because they don't have scarcity pushing and stressing them all the time. In, instead, the, the, there are these supports built in for the economy so that they are freer. And then the result of the freedom is less stress, and people then turn out to be more productive as workers. And as workers being more productive, then the economy actually shines, and that's one reason why those economies are so highly productive. Boy, that's so counter to things that you know people just here in America kind of take for granted. I mean, but the notion of of freedom, I mean, really, how free is one if you don't have some degree of economic freedom? There's there's not freedom. There's just just no freedom. And uh, the man who clearly, in my opinion, should have been and would have been the Democratic nominee for president without meddling by the DNC itself, Bernie Sanders, often referred to the success of the Nordic countries. Now, I know that made some of his... uh, his handler's a little bit nervous because, to many, that sounded unpatriotic. What's your reaction to that? Well, socialism actually has a wonderful uh, tradition in the U.S. as well um, as an ideology, and there were sometimes elected officials uh, who were, became mayors and so on of cities and towns sure. and were able to uh, compile quite a track record of success. So uh, socialism actually goes back quite a way in the U.S. And the U.S. was at one point uh, de- developing its um, developing mass movements that were headed so much in that direction that we were at 
some points around around the teens, the nineteen, you know, about nineteen ten, twelve, around in there, um, we were closer to getting to democratic socialism in terms of the the movements and their vision than the Scandinavians were. And, and hmm. in fact, uh, there, some of the labor organizers, young labor organizers in Scandinavia, would come over here and learn from our union organizing and then go back home to Scandinavia and take with them yeah. the lessons they were learning. So the U.S. was on a similar path a hundred years ago as the Scandinavians, but we got we got the distracted <laughs> yes we did fear fear of the other somehow oh it's amazing how effective uh, it was against that uh and in recent history scandinavia was was not immune from the financial meltdown of 2008 here in america the taxpayers bailed out the big banks for the foolish and possibly one could suggest immoral gambles they made no one responsible for that crisis that hurt so many citizens has gone to jail. Scandinavia took a very different approach and apparently bounced back nicely. Please tell us about that. How did these countries make such, a ra such rapid recoveries far exceeding those of Europe and America? It is dramatic, isn't it? Yeah, I, I, I gave an entire chapter to Iceland, even though Iceland is so small, um, but... Uh, it, it's bounced back from the, its disaster in 2008 was so rapid that uh, I, I really had to tell that whole that whole story because it was so it dramatic. Yeah, because Iceland actually w had way bigger disaster than the U.S. did or or the uh, European countries did because not only was it a banking failure and the failure of the you know the finance and their equivalent of Wall Street and so on. But they even had a monetary failure. People couldn't even get get money out of the ATMs. Oh it, was, it was that bad. It was the biggest economic collapse probably in history. And um, so, so people were were highly desperate. And the first thing they did, of course, was ask, "How did we get here?" And so they waged a revolution against the people who had gotten them there, which was mainly the bankers. Uh, with their speculation, and uh, who were highly, highly irresponsible bankers, the central bankers, and also the government. And so they threw out their government. They threw out. They jailed bankers. Yes. And uh, jailed some government officials. And uh, and it, so they clean house, putting in in their place. Uh, you know. Um, nationalized and cleaned up banks and also a, a new government that was a government of the left green left they mm -hmm. called it, uh, the coalition that then took over uh, so then they were able to institute all kinds of policies that were fantastic for the people for example the folks whose properties were underwater the folks whose properties in this country would be uh, would be bankrupt you know people would be um uh, thrown out of their houses because they would lose their houses. Um, in Iceland, they passed a law, no, you're not going to lose your house. And so people didn't lose their houses. Um, and people were, um, all, all kinds of arrangements were made to support people to continue in their jobs so there wasn't mass job loss as there was here. Uh, and the existing institutions, the schools and so on, had to tighten their belts quite a lot, but they were able to uh, cope really well with that situation and the result of uh, oh, and also they increased health services whereas uh, here of course we had not only a, a tremendous uh, cuts in education but also in in health and in other ways that are really important to any people trying to deal with with stress and and this 2008-9 was so stressful in the United States. Mm. Part of that is still, you know, the impact of that shows up in the vote for Trump because it was just so hard on so many people. But the Icelanders said, let's not make this hard on ourselves. Um, we're, we're uh, you know, we're throwing out the power of the 1% right now, so let's do policies that actually support people. And they supported people through in such a way that the whole economy of Iceland bounced back wow. much more quickly and they even got the uh, 
top rating of the number one on the happiness index by 2012, while the U.S. and, of course, the U.K. still struggling yeah. with austerity programs. Yes. And Spain and Greece especially are, are, are basket cases economically, yes. uh, while Iceland is just bouncing right back. That is amazing. It's so uh, It makes me think about you know when the Vikings did their uh, exploration of the world— Probably some of the things that they saw, people back home would say, nah, that can't be real. You're exaggerating. <laughs> it sounds like that can't be real. You got to be exaggerating. But, you know, I, I wanted to ask, I mean, you brought up Greece and Spain and things like that. The uh, people there know about the International Monetary Fund and how they impose austerity and make things a heck of a lot worse for the people there. Uh, but Iceland, I understand, actually dared to defy the International Monetary Fund. How did that work out? Tell us about that, if you would, please. I had such a great time interviewing one of the leading economists in Iceland, whose dad was also an economist and was the minister of the, uh, you know, the secretary of the treasury of the uh, Icelandic government. And so, and so this was a guy who had grown up as part of the political class. And he'd also spent time in Washington working for the World Bank uh, as an economist and so on. So he he uh, you know he, he was just the right person to interview on all this stuff. And I really put it to him very hard. I said I don't get how a tiny nation, like three hundred twenty thousand people, mm. can stand up to the IMF. Really? I mean that's you know when much bigger nations were really being made to uh, to ca- cower yes. before the might of oh, the IMF. Yeah. And he said, well, there were a couple things going on. One was that the uh, Icelanders were so united. Um, and and I checked that out in various other ways. I found that the th- 3% of the Icelanders were in the streets m- making their nonviolent revolution. I mean, if we had that, what would we have? Uh, 10 million people or something like that on the streets of America demanding mm. that there be change. You could just, uh, that helps us to understand the scale of the uh, resistance in Iceland to the um, IMF. And uh, and so the government knew that it was backed up by this, uh, not only the majority in terms of polls, but also this very hefty number of people who were willing to fight for it in the streets, fighting nonviolently, of course, yeah. um, and the, all the more powerfully because they chose nonviolence. And so... Uh, that was part of it, the, the economist said. And then another part of it was that um, they they uh, asked other nations to help them out, to go around the back of the IMF and to give them loans that would enable them to get through the crisis. And the, um, the those other nations they asked at first refused, but then there were solidarity movements within them. For example, in Norway, the, the sort of the Viking cousins uh were very upset that the Norwegian government refused to loan uh, make a very hefty loan to the Icelandic government and they the so Norwegians were rebelling against their own government and saying this is not the time to be in lockstep with the with the IMF this is the time to be in solidarity with the Icelanders and so uh, and so a few of the nations started to get into a solidarity position with regard to Iceland, and, but IMF doesn't like that. Iceland, I, IMF, <laughs> of course, wants to be the 800-pound gorilla oh, know, yeah. that represents all the nations, all the governments. And so uh, that was a reason. And then the, the, this economist, um, I quote him in my book, also said that he thought that because the IMF has such a terrible reputation all over the world yes, they do. for the austerity <laughs> policies that it imposes and how much suffering and, and and the stress at the point where there's more suicides, there are more homicides, there's more heart attacks, you know, all kinds of stress-related um, illness and, and bad impact happens after the IMF has been to your country and told you what to do. And the IMF now has such a terrible reputation in so many countries yes. um, that they decided maybe they should be a little bit decent uh-huh. with Iceland to try to get a little bit of public, uh, positive public relations. <laughs> <laughs> and surprise, it worked. It worked. <laughs> 
<laughs> the IMF did actually manage then to come through with the loan uh, without the austerity measures. Uh, oh, my goodness. Well, I'm sure people in Greece and Spain would uh, like to hear that, and probably some of them are taking a look exactly. at that, because the IMF can exactly. be pretty brutal. I mean, just outrageously brutal, and it doesn't help the people at all, these austerity programs. But oftentimes, we just refuse to learn from history. Uh, now, you, you say, this is an interesting thing you say, what do you mean when you write that a country's unemployment rate is actually a choice made by those who lead their economies? I found that out by accident years ago when I was in New Zealand. I was doing some training for the, uh, that was back in the uh, apartheid days in South Africa, and I was doing training for the national movement in New Zealand uh, that was opposing uh-huh. uh, New Zealand's uh, possible you know, cooperation with apartheid in South mm-hmm. Africa. So it was a very interesting training gig, and while I was there, I happened to look in the newspaper and see that the IMF consultants were also there consulting with the New Zealand government. Now, the New Zealand government had had a successful policy for quite a while of full employment, which meant that they had kept very low employment, uh, un- unemployment sure. rates, uh, just the kind of rate that allows for the fact that you decide to quit your job because you think you can find a better job if you spend a little time looking and so on. So there's always some people unemployed. But a full employment policy means that people who want to be employed do get jobs. And New Zealand had that quite successfully. Uh, The IMF consultants in uh, talking with the government at that time were saying, look, New Zealand, you really need unemployment. You need to stimulate unemployment and get a pretty hefty unemployment rate. So I looked into that to ask why would they urge unemployment and found out that it was because the IMF was saying if you have a, a higher a high unemployment rate, then international investors will be much more interested in New Zealand because international investors do not want uh, the the strength of the unions that you have when you have full employment. They want a lot of unemployed and desperate people around, and that weakens the power of the unions. And also, it means more people are willing to work for lower wages than they should get because they're desperate. And it's, pover- it's either poverty or work for you know m- minimum uh, wages. And so uh, that was the IMF policy at, at that time, and, I, and, I, and has been since. And I, I, it really helped me to understand, of course, um, there is this rigging of uh, unemployment rate by national governments, and it was a and it's a deliberate choice. Well, then when I come, you know, think about the U.S. and remember our response to the 2008, uh, 2007, and eight, um, you know, falling apart of our right. financial sector and the uh, massive uh, bailouts of the of the of Wall Street right. that then occurred. Um, was Main Street bailed out? You know, was no, was uh, were ordinary people in terms of on the job level bailed out? Well, there was one stimulus program that was passed under President Obama, and his thought was, we'll do one stimulus uh, program and get a lot of people to work through that, all kinds of infrastructure projects mm-hmm. and so on, and um, get people, get teachers back into schools teaching and so on. And then we'll do a second stimulus plan, which would have increased employment even more, right? Mm-hmm. And Congress said no. All right. Congress said no, because Congress, influenced by the 1%, was saying, no, it's, it's, uh, it's really fine to have, uh, you know, high, high unemployment. And, and a kind of... Uh, a kind of associated thing that happens with un- unemployment that we had here, which was people thrown out of jobs that paid $25, $30 an hour and only able then to get uh, right. flipping hamburgers right. uh, at McDonald's kinds of alternative jobs. So there, that that also masks the degree of unemployment, right? Because yeah, you have true. people yeah. who, who are taking ba- almost starvation. Right, uh, right wages uh who earned good wages before um because the economy is rigged in such a way that that's all that's available to them at that time boy this whole race to the bottom it's pretty universal it's been going on for a long time you know we used to have uh, a 
slavery in this country. You know, that was, uh, you didn't have to worry about working conditions or, or wages. It's pretty profitable for the people that uh, own everything. And there is apparently that mindset there. And, it, it, you know, as opposed to a race to the bottom, I'm getting the sense that in uh, these Scandinavian countries, I don't know, there's, it, there's not a race to the bottom at all. Like, uh, oh, no. McDonald's workers in uh, Copenhagen in Denmark earn $20 an hour. No. And what about the cost of <laughs> what about the cost of living there? I suppose they have their health paid for, they have their education paid for, so That's right. Wow. That's right. Not bad. That's right. Now, they, the Scandinavians tend to save less for old age than we do because they don't have uh, to. <laughs> the old age pension plan is universal. It's not associated with your job. It's a universal uh, uh, right to wow. be well taken care of when you're uh, when you're old. Mm. Who over there think it's out- outrageous that elders, sh- that any elders should be poor? Like why people you know, we're living to they finally get to seventy five or whatever, and they should be poor. That, I know what society would allow that to happen. And so yeah. because. Um, that the those countries are um, that's another, yet another index. It's called the um, best place to be an elder index, hmm. and uh, the best place to be an elder in the world is in Scandinavia. And so, people people don't uh, again feel like they need to work that second job or something in order to put money aside for when they get old, because uh, they, they're well taken. And and yet, during their working years, the working decades, people do have incentive to work, and they, it, you know it doesn't uh, adversely affect the productivity. Because as you say, uh, it, it's got to be really hard to believe for a lot of uh, Republican, you know, laissez-faire people who just uh, you know don't want any social support at all that uh, people can be productive, and they are. And productivity, as you say, is is very high in Scandinavia may be worth repeating what uh, you know about the productivity yes no question about it the product they their work productivity is higher over there than it is here because people are no happy question about it the, 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 the stats don't lie on that and uh, I don't actually unfortunately in my book tour I haven't run into any conservative economists uh, you know sort of Republican economists mm-hmm. um, who'd be willing to stand up and argue with me about that it's it's very odd because it's so clear that both individual worker productivity is higher over there and the and the economies over there as a whole are more robust and have been for decades and decades and decades um and um, and more productive than here so the the argument that is made from the right wing just doesn't (laughs) doesn't make uh, but since when do facts matter? You know, it, it's just, <laughs> I don't know. Here's another uh, element of that. Sure. I know we visited this before in our conversation, but uh, something I didn't bring up at that time is that people are also encouraged to quit their job and get another job if it's a better fit for them. Wow. So, yeah, because they, they don't figure a productive economy comes from square pegs being in round holes. Mm. Right. Oh, man. So if you happen to have gotten into a job that isn't a good fit for you, you're just not going to be as productive in True. it. Now that also has to do with over the over your work life. What if you're 40? Let's say you've been doing a job for 15 years or 20 years. Uh, there you are, 40 years old, and you're kind of burned out on that job. You just you know you you don't you you're get up in the morning, you well. don't want to go to work. Yeah. In that situation, the norm over there is to encourage people to quit their job oh, and goodness. go and get training. It's free. Um, maybe maybe so, that's the point at which somebody says, "Hey, I actually I've, I've learned. I I'm fascinated with law. I want to go to law school. Well, great, go to law school. It's free. So re you know retrain, reprogram yourself." Uh, get the skills that you want so that you can get a job that excites you. So you get up in the morning and you want to go to work. Absolutely. So again, that the payoff of that from the com- economic point sure. of view, obviously it's way more freedom for individuals than we have here. But uh, here people would hesitate to give up their job sure. because oh, their health care might be associated with it, right? It's but uh, their health care is universal. It's not tied to people's employment. 
And so people can can take chances of that sort and re, retrain themselves and get a new job. And it just makes it so much freer for the individual, but it also makes it more productive for the economy as a whole. And I can't help but think of, you know, in our allegedly free society, how many millions of people are stuck in jobs they hate year after year after year. And that, I mean, what what good is that? Fascinating stuff. The book is called Viking Economics, How the Scandinavians Got It Right and How We Can Too. How replicable is it? I mean, these countries, as you mentioned, uh, uh, Iceland has less than half a million people. How replicable are these things? You know, Bert, the biggest surprise to me was uh, as I was going into a room where I was going to interview a couple of senior um, social science uh, uh, people. It was in a think tank. It was in a research outfit. Uh, And I was going to do this interview, and I saw a photograph on the wall showing people who looked very Chinese, a whole delegation of them standing there for their photograph with these researchers that I was about to interview. I said, wow, those folks look like they look Chinese. And uh, the researchers said, yeah, they, they were a delegation from Beijing, from the People's Republic of China. They were economists and policymakers. And they were sent by the government there to Norway to learn from our economy. And my jaw drops open. <laughs> because China makes the United States look like a small country. <laughs> yeah, for sure. China makes also makes the United States look like a homogeneous country. Yeah, because huh. China is way more heterogeneous, you know, really? more cultures. Uh, at least here, we can, for the most part, talk to each other. Over there, there's there, uh, there's a problem about common language, and so huh. uh, I I couldn't believe it. I uh, my how startled I was was apparent to them, and they said, "Yeah, sure." We wondered the same thing, and so as soon as we sat them down in the room where we're about to take you, as soon as we sat them down, we said, "Why are you here?" <laughs> What can you learn from our small country of 5 million people? And the Chinese said, look, this question of scale is really important with regard to some economic measures and not important with regard to other other things. And also heterogeneity. Sometimes culture matters a lot in the policies, uh, economic policies you develop, and sometimes culture doesn't matter at all. And it all depends. So we're here not to find the things that are culturally specific and, and you know, from our point of view, would be weird that you folks do um, or that have to do with your small size. We're here to look for things that could be scaled up to China's size uh-huh. and complexity. And I, I really took that to heart. That's and I started to think about Social Security. Yeah. Hey, you know, Iceland, 320,000 people, they have a great social security system. We have a social security system that works in a nation so much larger. Um, and people are not refusing their social security checks because they are, you know, Baptists or something, right? right? I mean, people are happy to take the checks, and the system works fine. And the same with Medicare. With Medicare, uh, there's there have been studies that have shown that recipients of Medicare are happier uh, happier with that system than they had been when they were on private health insurance plans. Oh, I can attest to that myself, I assure you. It's great. I love Medicare. I really yeah, do. There we are. So Medicare works in a small nation like Denmark. It uh-huh. works in a, small, a, great, in a huge nation like the United States. So, uh, so I think the Chinese are correct. Hate, uh, you know, maybe, maybe you hate to admit that, but anyway, mm. uh, the Chinese might be correct about that, and it, and scale and heterogeneity uh, can can be uh, can, can be uh, it can it can be looked at on a point by point basis in order to adapt whatever it is that we're finding those little laboratories over in Scandinavia are coming up with that might work just great for us. Yeah, because as you say, I mean, there are a couple of things that work pretty well for us as well that uh, the, uh, you know, Republicans uh, would would like and have been trying to destroy ever since Franklin Roosevelt uh, put them in. But they work pretty well and people like them. Now, I wanted to ask just a little bit about climate change. Uh, I understand Nordic people are quite seriously attuned to the threat of climate change. Is there anything we can learn from them on this subject as well? 
I think so. I think so. Although the the chapter in which I discuss climate change is in the place where I have a couple of chapters where they they are a work in progress, like uh, you know, like we are. In other words, that they they are not. And actually, to tell you the truth, they wouldn't want me to present them as utopian because they're, those are not utopias. They are all works in progress, uh-huh. and they're. There, there are you know movements within each of those countries who are saying no, we can go farther on equality, or we can do this better, that better, the other thing, than we are doing now. So I don't want to present these as perfect societies, uh, and they're not perfect with regard to climate change either. On the other hand, as your question suggests, um, yes, they are farther along, and one one way they're farther along is that they set national goals for being carbon neutral. And they're and they're in a kind of friendly rivalry with each other about that. So when Sweden, mm. when Sweden's parliament set a, a more advanced goal than they had had before, and said by 2045 we're going to be uh, carbon neutral, then the Norwegian parliament met and moved their goal up to 2030, which makes them ahead of ahead of Sweden. Uh-huh. Um, so there's a That's kind great. of friendly rivalry among them about who you know who's better at what. <laughs> Well, I wanted to ask, one of the current challenges in Scandinavia, as shown in the very interesting TV series Lillehammer, uh, is recent immigration from regions that are experiencing war. What steps are the countries taking to handle their own racism? I guess there's the Norwegian Center Against uh, uh, Racism and uh, t- tell us about that. How are they uh, handling that? Uh, you know, because it's a very different culture that these these new immigrants are coming from. That's right. That's right. Very different. And so it is It is a real challenge. Uh, I was actually surprised that there was as much racism as there is over there. And so when I interviewed the director of the Anti-Racism Center in Oslo, which is government-funded, um, I asked the uh, director, why, where does this racism come from? And uh, I, you know, I understand where it comes from in the U.S., but what about over here? And she said, well, well, George, okay, so you had all that slavery, you had the slave trade, but who do you think it was built the the boats? Who built the ships for the slave trade? We did, among others. Oh. And and you just can't you can't participate in the slave trade at whatever level you do without diminishing the people who are going to be the cargo. You know, you, you can't really acknowledge that the people captured for slavery are human beings if you're going to participate in such a horrible practice as that. And so Norwegians also had to uh, render those African people as inhuman and therefore suitable for, you know, stone, being right. stowed into uh, yeah. slave ships. And and that, that old... Uh, perception of Africans as inhuman stays with us. It doesn't automatically disappear through the generations. We have to actually unlearn that old stereotype and and become non-racist, and that is the struggle for us. I'm sure it is, but at least they recognize it and are doing something about it. i got to ask this last question. We just elected a narcissistic, very dangerous man as our incoming president. Why bother now talking about this stuff, alternatives from Scandinavia? I mean, it's like this is the last thing uh, Trump would go for. What's the point? (laughs) The point is for us to be able to struggle, those of us who do want uh, Trump out and what he represents, uh, for us to be able to struggle towards something, not just against something. Because it's really tempting at this moment in the U.S. history for um, most of us, the majority of us actually are, are against Trump. Um, to it's tempting for us to go on the defense and feel like oh, well, and, and then be full of reactivity to his initiative. But what really worked for the Scandinavians in making their changes was to have a positive vision of what it was that they wanted. And so my book is being offered to Americans to look, take seriously, consider the Scandinavian model. And then ask if we if we want that, then let's work toward that. Let's struggle toward that, because it gives us more positive energy. It actually gives us more energy for the struggle. It provides way more unity for us in our struggle against Trump, and uh, and it also puts 
uh, uh, many of the Trump supporters who were economic supporters of him, that is, that they were so tired of the uh, the neoliberal approach that was right. represented also by the Democratic Party, yeah. that they will be very appealed to by the Nordic model. I think many of the Trump voters in Ohio and Michigan and so on would be very appealed to by the by the Nordic model and would say in a minute, oh, well, of course, that's much better. Full employment? Are you kidding? That's exactly what we want is full employment. And, uh, and assured pensions in old age? Absolutely. And the minimum wage? Absolutely. So they would be appealed to in the struggle against Trump if we were to hold out the Nordic model as our vision. Fascinating. The book is Viking Economics, How the Scandinavians Got It Right and How We Can Too. Author George Lakey, thank you so much. Fascinating, uplifting stuff. Thanks so much for being with us on Keeping Democracy Alive. It's been my pleasure. Thanks for your great question.